Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. All right. Uh, welcome to Intelligent Talk. Our website is intelligenttalk.com. Our next guest is of interest to anyone who would like to live, live longer than we do now. Dr. Audrey DeGray is leading proponent that we don't have to die at the current suggested time that we do, but we have the ability to extend life. Dr. DeGray is a graduate of Harrow School in London, and he has a PhD from Cambridge. He's the chief science officer of SENS Research Foundation and the vice president of new technology of Ajax Discovery. Uh, Dr. DeGray, thank you so much for coming on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So if I could, uh, just to talk about um, SENS, that basically is a uh, foundation that you have that involves the rejuvenation of the body, right? That's um, that's what it stands for? Yes, pretty much, yes. The the name is an acronym for something terribly long that we never talk about, really. But yes, ultimately it's all about rejuvenation, which means repairing the damage that the body does to itself throughout life that eventually makes us sick late in life. Right. And um, may I ask you how you got interested in this field and how you basically became such a proponent of, really you were the pioneer in this effort to, to say we, we didn't have to have that death trance, as you say, and extend life beyond our current guidelines. I got involved maybe 25 or so years ago when I discovered that hardly any biologists really appreciated that aging is a you know is a serious problem um and an an important and interesting one which is you know pretty crazy um but i thought that everybody agreed with me on this and i had never really done the experiment of actually asking people but when i discovered this i thought well okay you know i really ought to work on it um at that time i was already working quite successfully in another area of research in artificial intelligence uh, but I just I happened to be in a very fortunate position where I was in a, where I was able to switch wheels, so that's what I did. Um, in terms of being a pioneer in this area, where well, I always like to point out that maybe I'm the most prominent person these days, but um, there were plenty of people before me uh, who, who you know did their bit, and of course it was uh, harder back then because we didn't have really such a good idea about how to go about defeating aging. So you know I've definitely built on. Okay, and just just so people, your website is snssens.org, is that right? That's right. Okay, and just uh, just a brief about your background. I, your mother had, I think, two properties in the Chelsea area of London, which is an area that I love in London, and I believe you sold those and you donated something like $11 million to your foundation. Is that correct? That's something like right, yes. I think the total price that the houses sold for was $16.5 million, and I donated $13 million. Right, so you certainly put your money where your mouth is in terms of believing um, this project. And just to... Um, uh, I'm sorry? But yeah, I mean, you know, for me it was a no-brainer. You know, I dedicated my life to this, and I had only had one real, um, you know, reason why I needed money, which is I wanted to buy a nice house, which I have done. I'm living in a really fantastic place in the mountains south of San Francisco. Um other than that, you know, it was obvious to me that the best use for the money from my own, in my own terms was to spend it on the research. Okay, so I'm just going to try to explain in a simple term basically what you believe. You're also the author of the 2007 book, Ending Aging. Ending Aging, sorry. You believe that um, 
the body is sort of like a car. And like, as you said, Henry Ford made a lot of money because cars wear out and Henry Ford would just simply sell you a new car. But do you believe the body, we can replace it and we can make a car last longer, uh, just like a body, than it would normally be? That's sort of an example you give, correct? It is, that is correct, yes. And of course, the thing is, we can already do this. There are some cars out there that were built more than 100 years ago, and they're working every bit as well as when they were built. And that's not because they were unusually designed, designed to last 100 years, whereas most cars are designed to last 10 years. These 100-year-old cars were also designed to last only 10 years. It's just that their owners did an unusually comprehensive amount of preventative maintenance on them throughout their existence. So this tells us very clearly that the same thing is feasible, it's, it's potentially feasible for this much more complicated machine called the human body. The only thing is that because it's more complicated, we don't yet know how to do that comprehensive preventative maintenance. I have a, a 1923 Model T in Maine, so I could certainly relate to your example, Dr. DeGray. And I've kept that, we've had that right now for almost 100 years, so it goes on what you were saying. Um, I, I've seen your... Fantastic. Thank Good. you. I've seen your lectures. I went to your website. I went to your YouTube videos. I'm um, familiar with your books. So I've tried to sort of summarize. You, there are seven types of um, things with cells that you think needs to be corrected, as I understand it. And it's it's sort of complicated, but it's like I believe um, with stem cells, we're the most advanced. You're saying, and then it's like restore tissue supplements, get the junk outside of cells. A whole series. Could you just, in very uh, simple terms, explain what needs to be done and what has been done with the science, doctor? You're absolutely right. There are seven major types of damage that we need to address, that we need to repair. And the rate of progress on developing those repair technologies has certainly been very non-uniform. Some of them have moved a lot further than others. The one that um, has been in the lead is to repair a, a type of damage that I simply call cell loss, the cells declining in number. Um, that happens, of course, when cells die and they are not automatically replaced by the division of other cells. Um, so, of course, the fix for that is stem cell therapy to put cells into the body that we have uh, prepared in the laboratory into a state where they will divide and differentiate to replace the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. Um, and we at Sense Research Foundation have done very little stem cell therapy over the years, stem cell research, simply because um, all of the really important stuff is already in progress being done by other people. So that's all been very wonderful. We've been able to focus on the things that are more neglected. Um, however, over the years, we have made progress on those areas, and now a number of other things are moving along very nicely. The one that's, I think, definitely uh, the runner-up right now, the one that's in the number two position, is to eliminate senescent cells or we often call them death-resistant cells, cells that get into a, a bad state where they're doing more harm than good, but for whatever reason, the body is unable to get rid of them. And, of course, the senescent cells have been very much in the news over the past couple of years as a result of the, um, the uh, progress that's been made um, in developing drugs that can selectively kill such cells. The leading company in that area, Unity Biotechnology, has raised you know uh, more than three hundred million dollars to to pursue this. And there are many other companies, including ones that we are closely associated with, that are also doing that same thing. In other areas, there's still you know a long way to go, but 
um, a number of them have also been spun out into companies uh, that are startups that have not done quite so well at Unity yet, but they're definitely following that same trajectory. So, you know, we're pretty happy about the way, the way things are moving. So, so, so your focus at Sends is to work on things that are not being pursued by other people to sort of fill in the gaps. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, our priority has always been to do things that are not being done by other people, and the reason for that very simple: the fact that any preventative maintenance approach of the sort that we are we are pursuing is necessarily a divide and conquer approach, an approach in which you can't leave anything out. You've got to fix all the types of damage because any one of them can make the machine uh, function less well and eventually not at all, um, irrespective of how well you fix all the other types of damage. Um, of course, there's a certain amount of um, cross-talk between types of damage. In other words, if you fix one, then you may generally you know, um, put the body into a somewhat better state so that the other types of damage will accumulate slightly more slowly than they previously were. Historically, my view has always been that that crosstalk was probably not going to be very substantial. That, you know, you wouldn't actually delay the, the other things very much as a result of fixing any one type of damage. However, uh, now, I think it's fair to say that, at least in the case of senescent cells, that crosstalk may be much more substantial than I was previously anticipating. And that's, of course, fantastically good news. It means that we would expect to actually have substantial benefits and allow ourselves to, you know, to get therapies that were truly comprehensive, um, that, were, that really, you know, postponed the ill health of old age a lot, uh, even with a relatively incomplete, relatively imperfect um, panel of, of repair interventions. Right, like like I, you've said in your videos that basically, obviously, if you live long enough, you're definitely going to die of one of these things. One of the things you mentioned is, is the plaque associated with Alzheimer's. And you, are yeah. you working on methods to reduce the plaque? Is that one of the things that you're doing at SENS? That is one of the things we're doing, but not in relation to Alzheimer's. And the reason we're not is the same reason why we don't work on stem cell research. Namely, it's been done. And it really has been done well now. Um, when I started thinking about this whole thing back 20, nearly 20 years ago, that was at the point where the idea of vaccinating against amyloid in the brain for Alzheimer's had just begun. And there was uh, an important proof of concept study published in 1999 um, showing that this could work in mice, in principle. Um, it was very preliminary, of course, but it was enough of a proof of concept to get people excited. And from then on, over the next few years, there were clinical trials that started up really quickly. <coughs> there were a few um, you know, bumps in the road um, over the next while. Some of the trials didn't succeed. But now we're in a position where I believe there are at least four separate immunotherapy protocols that have been all the way through phase three clinical trials and definitely shown the work to actually eliminate amyloid. Now, of course, um, Alzheimer's is a very complex, multifactorial disease. You can think of it really as aging in microcosm. And the result is that um, the cognitive benefit that is um, actually enjoyed by the people who get their amyloid eliminated is pretty mild, if anything, because the other things that are going wrong in Alzheimer's at the same time have not yet been repaired. Um, but still, it's a huge thing to have in our back pocket. So what we've done is we've worked on other amyloids. It's, it's remarkable that very few people know how um, you know, different types of protein get into this indigestible state in the spaces between cells um, in different tissues around the body, and they cause problems as well. And these are much, much less appreciated and, and understood.
uh, but we've worked on one that's particularly important for extremely old people, people over the age of 105 or so, and that happens in the heart. Um, and we funded a group in Texas, in Houston, to, uh, to develop an immunotherapy that eliminates that type of amyloid, and they were extremely successful. We published a nice proof of concept paper in 2014 in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, a very prominent journal. Um, and that has duly been um, coming to the interest of investors. And so now uh, there's a company being formed, and the professor who ran that work, and also his number two uh, researcher, have quit that position at the University of Texas in Houston in favor of going full time with this company. And of course, that's allowing them to attract investment. So, yeah, things are going well. So, yeah, so basically, uh, you just to, to sort of sum up this very complicated science, a lot of your work involves fixing damaged cells. Um, too many cells, too few cells, mutations of cells, To uh, with these seven methods that people can read about if they go to your website, uh, sens.org, to extend the body's life. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. Okay. And, and you, as I understand it, you believe that the technology exists now that you think someone is alive today who could be able to live to 1,000. Is that right? Well, let me put it slightly differently. Okay. Um, the technology exists today that is close to allowing us to fix up most of the damage that the body accumulates. Sufficiently close, I believe, that we are likely to be able to fix most of that damage within the next 20 years. So first of all, I emphasize the word likely, not certain by any means, but I do think we have at least a 50-50 chance of getting to that point 20 years from now. Now, of course, I've already mentioned that some of these things are already in place or in clinical trials, some, t some things indeed already proven, and a lot of the ones that are not in clinical trials yet will be so within the next couple of years. So that's pretty good news. But of course, clinical trials take time, some of them don't succeed, so I, I want to be cautious about the probability that I think there is a substantial chance that we will not get there in 20 years, so I need to emphasize that. <clears throat> Moreover, the thing that I think, that the, the point that I think we will have reached in 20 years with high probability is not comprehensive 100% damage repair. It is only repair of most of the damage. So you may ask, well, how can I translate that into living to a thousand? And of course, the answer is that when we repair damage, we buy time. We actually, you know, rejuvenate people who are already in middle age or older, let's say 60 or 70 years old, so that they won't be biologically 60 or 70 again until the, um, until they're, let's say, chronologically 90. Okay. Um, so that's only 20 or 30 years that we've bought those people, but that's a long time in technology. And of course, that means it's also a long time in medical research which means that by the time these people do come back and they need to be re-rejuvenated, it's a racing certainty that we will actually have improved the therapies, not, again, still not to, be, to perfection, but sufficiently that we can kick the ball down the road a bit further and stay one step ahead of the problem. That's what I've called longevity escape velocity. And um, I think that is almost certain to be the case. Once we get those first 20 or 30 years of additional life, conferred on people who are already in middle age at that time, then, you know, game over. And I also, so, sorry, yeah, I also look, looked at yeah, some of the, I'm sorry, Doctor, would you yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, also, no, go ahead. 
what I learned from you also is, is we've already, I think, since 1900, increased the, the human lifespan by, by 30 years. And the uh, population above 65 was something like 8.5% in 1950. And by 2050 in the U.S., it's supposed to be something like 22%. So we're, we're already on our way to doing that, I would guess. Is that right? Yes, we are. But one must be careful not to oversimplify that comparison. Because okay. the fact is that the um, reason why we had this huge increase in average longevity over the past century was mostly because we pretty much entirely eliminated the causes of death that were killing a very large number of people very early in life. Specifically, you know, certainly 200 years ago, more than one third of babies, even in the wealthiest countries in the world, would die before the age of one. And of course, there were a hell of a lot of deaths in childbirth and throughout life. So that means that the average longevity, you know, was obviously going to rise a great deal once people stopped dying at those ages. However, once you've done that, once you've pretty much entirely eliminated early death, then you can't do it again. So you have to attack the next problem, which is, of course, now the ill health associated with old age. And the um, attacking of that is still very much in its infancy, of course. That's why we exist at Science Research Foundation. Now, of course, we have actually made progress in, well, if we look at, for example, the period since World War II, um, we still have made maybe 15 years of progress in increasing longevity in, in the developed world. And that is despite the fact that by the end of World War II, we had already pretty much entirely done what, done the, the easy part, the um, elimination of deaths from infectious diseases early in life. So we have made some progress. But again, it's not the kind of progress that we would expect to see continuing unless and until we make completely dramatic breakthroughs in what kind of <laughs> medicines we're applying here. The increases that have happened over the past 50 or 70 years have mainly been due to prosperity, due to people getting better nutrition, um, especially better nutrition early in life, that has allowed them to simply, you know, spend their lives biologically younger than they would otherwise have done. It's not mainly been as a result of medicine. All right. Could, one thing I learned from your videos that I wasn't aware of before is uh, a hydra. And a hydra, basically, in a, in a laboratory, can live essentially forever if there's no predator. Could you just explain what a hydra is and, and that if there's any relevance to that, to the work you're doing and this work? Sure. Yeah. So hydra are a simple animal. They only have about 20 different types of cell, and they live in, in, in fresh water, and they are... Basically immortal. People have grown these things and kept them alive in um, the tanks, you know, in laboratories for many years, and they just don't die. Um, and that's pretty interesting because they have a rapid life cycle. Your average hydra can give birth to another hydra after only a few, a few days of life. Um, but your second question, namely, what can we le learn from hydra in terms of how to? Um, in, increase our own life, the answer is really not very much. And the reason it's not very much is because Hydra do not have any non-dividing cells. With all of these 20 cell types that I mentioned a moment ago, they constantly divide. Well, I mean, not constantly, but certainly in a Hydra, however old the Hydra is, there is no cell in the Hydra that has actually, um, you know, been sitting there without dividing for more than three weeks or so. All right. It's not very long. And we have to, and the reason that's so important is because cell division is a fabulously powerful and versatile 
rejuvenating process, a process that uh, reduces, either by dilution or by selection, reduces the um, amount of damage that each individual cell actually contains, right? All right. Um, so we are, therefore, you know, if we look at our own bodies, we don't have that luxury. There are very essential parts of the body, especially the brain, that are composed of cells that don't divide at all. And furthermore, the brain's function, it depends on the fact that it's composed of cells that don't divide at all. Um, so we don't have that option. Is, is there any animal that we can look to that gives us some, you know, like, I, don't tortoises live something like 140 years? Is there anything that we can look to that gives us some, some model for what we could do for as a human or not that's alive today? Um, well, uh, different animals tell us different things. In general, though, um, not much. We okay. can't get, get much from any of these animals. So, for example, tortoises and um, other lower vertebrates they don't have, they're not warm-blooded. So that means that they do a lot less breathing, a lot less, uh, you know, the chemistry that combines oxygen with nutrients to extract energy from the nutrients. And that's very helpful to them because it means that they don't have to, they don't make so much in the way of toxic free radicals, these reactive, reactive molecules that are a kind of byproduct of breathing. All right. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still there, yes. Good. Oh. Um, so, so again, you can't necessarily learn much from those. Then we could look at, at mammals that live a long time. In general, the mammals that live a really long time are really large. So, you know, whales, for example. And that also means that they don't have to breathe so much. They don't have each individual cell in a, in a whale doesn't have to do so much um, metabolizing of oxygen as an individual cell in a human being does because of just the surface-to-volume ratio. So again, they may not have any tricks that we don't have that allow them to live longer. They may just have an easier problem to solve. Okay. But there are a few cases where we may be able to learn something. One particularly prominent one right now in research is there's a very small rodent called the naked mole rat, which lives in underground tunnels in the, um, in the Kalahari Desert in Southern Africa. And uh, they also don't have too much to worry about in terms of breathing because they are in an environment which is very warm and where the temperature is very constant from day to night. Um, so they are not as warm-blooded as your average mammal. But in addition to that, they do appear to have particularly strong ability to avoid cancer. And the mechanisms underlying that have only recently become, even you know, started to become elucidated. So we might learn something there. Similarly, birds, birds and also bats, because they fly, they are very protected against predators. They can get away from predators a lot more easily than land-based mammals. And that means that that has also allowed evolution to create new tricks and, and get, make them slower at aging. Um, but again, you know, using these tricks is tricky. You'd have to kind of, you know, figure out ways to juxtapose these new methods that these other animals are using with the rest of human metabolism. You know, you don't want to just turn humans into birds. You want to find some some small tricks that you can do, and that's not necessarily easy. Could you discuss the uh, the death trans culture, as you say, which basically I don't think the FDA uh, recognizes 
this type of work officially. I think you said in one of your videos, and basically that we're, that so much opposition is put in front of you, like for saying, well, if we can live so long, then we'll just have overpopulation. And you say, well, we can just have less children, and there's no reason not to work on this. But it's just like it, it really goes against the grain, goes against really much of religious thought, which is basically that we we're going to die and we try to live a good life so we can be rewarded in the afterlife. But a lot of what you're doing is, I guess, I guess maybe less so now. But there was a lot of resistance, correct? There's death trance, as you say. Okay, so you just said a bunch of things that are not quite correct. So okay. let me go from the top. Um, the first thing about the FDA, that's historically been true, that it wasn't possible to approve a drug for aging. But now it's not really true anymore. The word aging is kind of part of the problem because nobody really agrees on the definition of what it is. And of course, you know, the FDA can't approve a clinical trial for something without being precise about what they're approving it for, right? Um, so this, this um, problem was largely solved a couple of years ago by a, a very extended and detailed discussion that occurred between the FDA and uh, a few senior gerontologists. And the result was they came up with a definition of aging in all but name. In other words, a way that a clinical trial could be designed with an endpoint that for practical purposes was equivalent to aging, but which was actually defined in a very complex, subtle, combinatorial way. And the result was there is now a clinical trial that's probably going to start fairly soon for a drug called metformin. Now, metformin is a very old drug, and no one's going to make any money from it because uh, it's been off patented before anyone, you know, all of us were born. But um, still, the principle is now established. So anyone else, if they have another drug that they think might have a general effect on aging, they can go along and, and propose a clinical trial, and they can use the same, the identical same endpoint that is in place for this trial, and the FDA will say, all right, go ahead. That is an enormously important thing for the um, for the enthusiasm of Big Pharma for actually developing such drugs. And actually there's been another uh, advance very much more recently, just a few months ago, um, in which the World Health Organization implemented a, um, a way of incorporating aging into the classification, the taxonomy of disease and sickness that is used worldwide for um, you know, identifying why a, a physician is prescribing this or that drug. And that's again going to make a huge difference to the um, enthusiasm of Big Pharma in developing such drugs. Now, if we go to the pro-aging trance, yeah, this is a very big deal. Um, the uh, the pro-aging trance is the, the name that I gave for the spectacular irrationality that people exhibit when you talk to them about the idea of doing something about aging. And especially if you talk to them about the desirability of doing something about aging, they will come up with the most extraordinary excuses for aging um, you know, and in uh, arguments for why it's some kind of blessing in disguise. And that has got slightly better over the years, but it's still really, really bad. It's terrible. Um, and the reason it's terrible is because the actual problems that people come up with have really simple answers to them, really simple rebuttals, and people just refuse to listen. I've been giving the same answers to these questions since forever, and it's just insane how people just, you know, they don't come up with any reasons why my rebuttals are incorrect, they just don't hear them, they just don't listen, and they'll come back with the same reservations the following day. Um, so the one you mentioned in particular with over, regarding overpopulation, quite important actually to slightly correct what you said. 
Um, I don't only say that people could have less kids. And the reason I don't only say that is because, um, you know, people don't really fancy having fewer kids. People really like the idea of being able to have kids when they want to. Now, yes, it's true that the, given the choice between, on the one hand, having fewer kids than you would like, and on the other hand, getting seriously sick, you know, with Alzheimer's and so on, and dying, you know, most people might well choose to have fewer kids. But still, it's not a very persuasive argument because it's, you know, it's a dilemma. So the thing that I prefer these days is actually to emphasize that the overpopulation problem is already in the process of being solved by the advent of other technologies that will reduce the extent to which people pollute the planet. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about renewable energy, but also artificial meat, you know, desalination on a big scale. These things are going to hugely reduce the extent to which the to which humanity damages the environment, and therefore it's going to increase the carrying capacity of the planet. So we're going to be able to have a lot more people on the planet with less environmental impact than what we have today. All right. Um, Now, one thing I wanted to correct in what you said a moment ago was with regard to religion. People do often assume that religious people would be particularly opposed to this because it would be seen as, you know, altering God's will and all that kind of stuff. Religious people have a very clear idea that God created the world the way it is and all that. But actually, that's completely wrong. First of all, religious people are quite easy to speak to because what they believe is written down in Holy Scripture, whereas what secular people believe tends to be much more slippery. Um, so I start out by, start, by looking at what Holy Scripture says about relevant aspects of this. First thing is, Obviously, Holy Scripture is very clear that God is omnipotent, which means that there's no concept of actually disrupting God's plan for us. He can perfectly well, you know, strike somebody down with a thunderbolt, however healthy they are. So, you know, that's not a problem. But also, there's nothing in Scripture that's against technology. You know, if you're, um, if it was okay to develop vaccines and antibiotics and so on that saved a lot of lives, then it should be okay to develop things that make people healthy in old age. And and most important thing of all, of course, is that the health problems of old age cause a huge amount of suffering. And Holy Scripture of all kinds is extremely clear that what we're supposed to be doing down here is minimizing suffering. So actually it's really easy to get religious people on board. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up, uh, and thank you for correcting me on the uh, on the FDA. I did realize they had changed their position. I remember reading in the past that for a number of years they hadn't. So I'm glad they're they're now open to this work. Um, I, I noticed on your website there's a link to Moscow. You have some research affiliation in Moscow, correct? That's true. Yes. Um, I mean, it's only really an, a, a, an honorary one. But I, when I go to Russia, I'm always very heartened by the attitudes that they have. It's much easier. To, uh, to get people on side and to talk to people in Russia. They never come up with all these crazy, stupid questions about, um, you know, about, uh, uh, about, you know, defending aging. They somehow get it much more easily. It's very, it's very refreshing. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is there something in Russia that's more amenable to us? And you, you just answered my question. Um, I, I looked at your budget before we went on the program. It's something like uh, $4 million a year. Is that right? For sense? Yes, it is. And I, I and you've been backed by some pretty big names. I think Peter Thiel, who co-founded PayPal, he was one of your backers. He was the first major donor to us. Yes, he started giving us in the region of a million dollars per year in two thousand six. 
and um, you know, without him, I don't know where we would be. We've now got a few other donors of that kind of scale. Um, for example, Vitalik Buterin, the guy who created Ethereum, he's our current number one donor. Uh, but you know, not all of our money comes from those sources. We also get, you know, we have a lot of, you know, what you might call grassroots support. Um, you know, we have a nice friendly donate button on our website, and um, and a substantial proportion of our money comes from small donations by large numbers of people. Who, who that, oh, that second person you mentioned, Doctor? I'm sorry, I just didn't hear you. The second person, Vitalik Vitalik Buterin. Okay, is the guy who created Ethereum. All right, and I, I noticed that Bill Maris, uh, when he was at Google, had a project. I think it was called Calico. Was similar. Were you involved with Google and their project at all in this area? Okay, so um, Bill, yes, Bill was running an, a part of Google called Google Ventures. And he's been very keen on doing something about aging for a long time. And um, several years ago now, about six years ago maybe, <clears throat> when Ray Kurzweil joined Google to work on machine learning for uh, natural language processing, um, he and Bill got together and they created this proposal. Uh, when Calico finally came into existence four or five years ago, it's a separate company. It's affiliated with Google, of course, and it's entirely funded by Google, by, the, by Larry and Sergey. Um, uh, but Bill Maris is not involved. Bill left, left Google, and Ray Kurzweil is also not involved. And what's rather more important is that I'm not involved, despite my best efforts. Google are spending a huge amount of money on Calico, but they're spending it incredibly badly. They are basically not doing anything that has a good chance of really delivering proper um, progress against aging. All right. Could you explain what AJAX therapy is? I think you're, the, you're involved with that as well. What are they doing? Are they complementary work to SENS? AJAX Therapeutics, yes, very much so. AJAX are doing fantastic work, and of course that's why I'm working with them, um, for them, in a vice president position. Um, the main things that AJAX are doing are related to using stem cells against aging um, in two ways. Number one, um, everyone knows that stem cells are potentially very useful <coughs> against uh, various aspects of aging, but what has really held that field back in many cases has been the ability to create a particular type of stem cell, a, a desired type, um, with high purity. Uh, generally, the waves that exist right now don't work very well that way. You've got a lot of cells in there that are not the type of stem cell that you'd like. And in some cases, it's possible that we, the, if you put the wrong stem cells into the body, it could do more harm than good. So this is a big problem, and AJAX have a solution to that that works really well. The other thing that AJAX are working on is something they call induced tissue rejuvenation, which is all about restoring the, the, stem, the stemness, so to speak, of stem cells in the body back to a state where they are more regenerative than they typically are in an older person. Uh, so both of these technologies are very promising, and yes, you're quite right, they are very complementary to the work that we're doing within um, within Science Research Foundation. What would your ideal budget be? Uh, I mean, you could. You, I've heard you say you could go a lot faster if you had $50 million. Would that be your ideal $50 million a year? I mean, what would be your ideal budget to really accelerate your work? Yes, $50 million would be enough to, be, to make it so that the money was not the rate limiter. Of course, you know, science is hard, technology is hard, so there's going to be some maximum 
speed at which we can go, irrespective of how much money we have. But I think the point at which the money would reach diminishing returns is about 10 times what we have right now. So in the order of $50 million per year. Now, um, at this point, things are changing in that regard. So our budget at the foundation has been static around 4 or $5 million per year for a long time now. But what's happened over the past couple of years is there's been a really spectacular influx of investment money, actual private sector money. And that's been relevant because the Essence Foundation have been able to spin out a number of our projects into startup companies. They have reached a level of proof of concept that allows investors to see a, a genuine value proposition, a genuine you know, route to eventual profitability. And, um, of course, that means that a lot more money is coming in now. Now, there's still quite a few projects which have not reached that point, and that's why the foundation still exists and why we still need a substantially greater amount of money than what we have. But, you know, I'm beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So just in conclusion, um, you are, you're, you're optimistic. I assume you're more confident than you were even when you wrote your book about 11 years ago that we're going to get there and, and funding will increase. And if people want to donate, they can go to your website sens.org and make a donation and I would overall you you say you're you're, you're compliment you're optimistic about this in the future well I'm always optimistic but I think you know for someone in my position you know in the, in the eye of the storm so to speak I um, always uh, it's always a glass half full glass half empty thing I always know that it could be better you know, that we could be moving faster if we had more resources. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm very proud of what we've been able to achieve over the past decade or more in terms of take, in terms of moving the needle, taking things forward, both in terms of the science and in terms of the credibility and the um, public support for it. So yeah, I, 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 we're definitely getting there. Just one, just just one final question. I I noticed I read that you are signed up to cryogenically freeze yourself. Is is that right upon death? Yes, that is correct. Um, I've been signed up with Alcor, the largest of the um, cryonics companies, for more than 15 years now. Uh, of course, the goal is not to actually, but that's not my plan. You know, nobody who um, has signed up to be cryopreserved actually wants to be. It's just, um, the you know, it's plan B. Plan B. That's right, yes. It, it's it, the second worst thing that can happen to you, as somebody said a long time ago. It basically, what they do is they freeze your head, correct? Is that they don't take your body? Is that right? Well, you have the option. You can either have only your head frozen, or you can have the whole body. Okay. Do you do anything specially to? I mean, as I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not. You, like I understand, you drink beer and you had like a fried food. Like, is, do you, you obviously keep yourself very thin. Is there anything that you do to try to extend your life and your, your personal life? Anything that that the average person should be doing besides staying thin? Well, those are two very different questions. What I do and what the average person should be doing. Okay. Um, what I do, what I do is governed by a couple of things. Number one, that I am spearheading the crusade against aging, which means that my work and the way I run my life has an impact on how soon we're going to defeat aging. So, for example, I definitely don't get enough sleep, and that's bad for me, but it's worth it. Um, uh, the other thing that's very important about myself is that I'm just very well built. I'm just really lucky physiologically. 
So, you know, I've been tested a number of times over the years uh, for all manner of different aspects of my biological age, and I always come out really young. I'm just one of those people who can, I can eat and drink exactly what I like and not even do much exercise, and, and nothing seems to be happening. So that's fantastic for me. But for the average person, it's not really the same. The average person has to take a lot more care of themselves than I do. Certainly at, at my age, I'm 55 now. Um, and so my, my, my advice is always, you know, pay attention to your own body. Do what works. Do not do things that make you feel sick. Uh, you know, it's the obvious thing. It's not the kind of thing that gets written down in books because it's not the kind of thing that people would pay money to, to read. But the fact is, it's true. And you can't go much further than that. Each individual is different, very different. So any generalization that one makes about what particular diet or what particular supplements might be useful, those things will only be actually useful for a small subset of people. All right, well, Dr. Gray, um, we're basically at the end here. I, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. It's been very interesting. We'll absorb everything that you say. If everyone wants to help, they can go to your website, sens.org. Thank you so much for your day, and, and have a good, a good rest of the week and good weekend. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Have bye a good bye. day. Bye-bye.